Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. Happy shutdown day. The government has been shut down, theoretically. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about. That's going to be part of it. Uh, but before we get into all of that, I do have to give you a couple podcast notes. There is a chance, a small chance, that this will be the last podcast for January uh, because depending on the length of this, which this is going to be another long one, and the length of next week's one when it's recorded, uh, I will have to put it on Patreon as a Patreon's only thing because we're not going to have enough space on Blueberry, our media host. You might remember we started out at one particular size back in May when the podcasts were only 30 or 45 minutes. Then they reached an hour, so we had to upgrade. Then it became an hour and a half. And in January, you've had two two-hour episodes already. Plus, there are five Mondays, so you're, you're getting an extra episode, theoretically, on top of that than a normal month, and it's just not going to fit. I'm going to try and blaze through all this stuff quickly, but know now that if you do not see an episode next Monday, it is because it's on the Patreon page, and only our patrons are able to see it, because Patreon gives me separate storage to store it. We'll still post the show notes so you know that it was there. Um, I'm still, Like I said, I'm still going to try and squeeze everything in just in case. Uh, but just kind of know that potentially is coming. In the Law 140 this week, we're going to end up talking about the a story out of Florida where Customs and Border Patrol searched everyone on a Greyhound bus to ask them to prove their citizenship. I'm going to give you a little bit of law, kind of an overview of immigration enforcement and border searches. And as part of that, in case I forget in the actual Law 140 segment, because that's going to be recorded separately from the main podcast, uh, wanted to give a shout out to uh, Byron Mobley. He is at Byron Mobley on Twitter, or Byron underscore Mobley, I apologize. And I don't know the person's name, but Amy EP9, at Amy EP9. The two of them both sent me a lot of stuff to, to look at because I don't do immigration law, and immigration law is wildly fucking complex. So thank you to both of those. Uh, I'm going to try and remember to thank you both again during the Law 140 segment, but this was a change to what we were originally going to cover as part of the Law 140, uh, because it became a bunch of requests all at once late in the afternoon as this story was kind of blowing up on Twitter. So I had to scrap what we were originally going to do. I've now got to go record something separately, send it to Mike, have him slice and dice it overnight. Uh, so I just want to make sure that, you know, if I forget when I get home to record it, you have not been forgotten. Uh, thank you both. So as far as normal podcast stuff, you hear me say this every week, join the conversation online. If you haven't already, we are at Fiskamall on Twitter. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can leave us a comment on our website, Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. If you'd like to become one of our patrons, you can go to, see, I did it. You know, two weeks ago I did it. Last week I did not. This time I did it. Uh, if you want to become one of our patrons on Patreon, Go to patreon.com slash fisk. That is patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. One of these times, I will consistently two weeks in a row be able to get that out of my mouth without screwing up and saying Patreon the first time when I'm trying to say patron. It will happen. Uh, also, if you like what you hear during this episode or any of the other ones, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. We wanted to get to 150 before the end of the month. We are at 146. We are only four reviews away. So if you have not left us a review, 
please do so, and I would appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to skip through most of the politics stuff because we just don't have the time to do it if I'm going to get these next two podcasts on our host to have them small enough in size. I do briefly want to point out that this government shutdown that is going to happen uh, technically started on Saturday. It's it, one, it's not a real shutdown. I mean, government employees, most of them don't get paid as this is going on. They get back pay once the government reopens. So that sucks if you happen to work for the government. But most functions still continue to function. The parks are going to be open. The military is still going to serve. Congress critters still get their paychecks and get to go to their fancy clubs and everything else. Uh, but it's noteworthy because this is the earliest government shutdown in any presidential administration ever. Uh, Donald Trump, our beloved Papaya POTUS, is the first president to preside on a government shutdown on the anniversary of him taking office. And it's also the first shutdown since Jimmy Carter for a president whose party controlled both houses of Congress. So Carter had three of them. Uh, he had, no, sorry, he had five total. He had three in 77, one in 78, and one in 79. And of course, Democrats controlled both chambers of Congress back then. Uh, but it's the first time in my lifetime that you've had a either party, Republican or Democrat, president whose party controlled both houses of Congress and they still can't pass a fucking budget on time. And everyone's talking about blaming the Democrats, but go look at the votes. You've got 52 Republicans in the Senate. Three of them voted no. So they can't even get a simple majority of actual Republicans to pass a spending plan in the Senate. It's ridiculous. These people don't know how to govern. They're not serious about governing. Uh, but that is what it is. So let's talk about some criminal justice news because I know that's why most of you tune in. Uh, we got two court cases to talk about. The Ninth Circuit's not really a, uh, a police case in this instance, but the Ninth Circuit has ruled that you have no right to earn a living via prostitution. So we've talked before about licensing laws and some of the other absurdities that the government has to regulate what you do with your life. Uh, well, there was a case in California where essentially a group of, they're called exotic workers, sex workers, uh, filed suit arguing that California's laws criminalizing prostitution were unconstitutional uh, using the Supreme Court precedent of Lawrence v. Texas, which was the case that overruled uh, laws on sodomy and some of the other cases since then. The Ninth Circuit said, and, and the key quote is, quote, the relationship between a prostitute and a client does not qualify as a relationship protected by a right of association. So they cover the precedent, they cover First Amendment rights of association, they cover 14th Amendment rights of equal protection. It's a fairly boring opinion as far as law goes, but I'm going to give you a link to it anyway because it's interesting subject matter. Uh, essentially, if you want to have the ability to work as a prostitute, you need to get your legislators to pass a law allowing it because the courts think that these laws are perfectly fine. Uh, out of the Tenth Circuit, the this is a police case but not in a context we typically deal with. So the El Paso County Sheriff in Texas uh, basically punished his subordinates when those subordinates wouldn't do his bidding as part of a campaign. Uh, I'll give you some excerpts from the story. Uh, they talk about a Lieutenant Peck, and the court says, quote, Lieutenant Peck's claims arise out of her statements to the media. In 2013, Sheriff Makeda, he's the bad guy in this story, uh, and Under Sheriff Presley secretly took an internal affairs document planning to use it against a political opponent. 
At the time, Lieutenant Peck was in charge of the Internal Affairs Unit of the Sheriff's Office. Lieutenant Peck knew that the document was missing, but did not know who had taken it. The mystery of the missing document generated public interest. To address the matter, Sheriff Makeda ordered Lieutenant Peck to speak to the media and deliver a false narrative. That's court speak for lies. Uh, saying that the internal affairs document had been stolen by supporters of the political opponent. Lieutenant Peck spoke to the media as requested, but she did not give the story crafted by Sheriff Makeda. She instead, subquote, spoke truthfully. In response, Sheriff Makeda transferred Lieutenant Peck to the midnight shift. So that's one of the complainants. Uh, another one, a Sergeant Stone complained. Uh, Sergeant Stone's claim arises out of his political support for the candidate opposed by Sheriff Makeda and under Sheriff Presley. Upon learning of Sergeant Stone's support, Sheriff Makeda retaliated by subjecting Sergeant Stone to a criminal investigation into the missing internal affairs document that the sheriff stole, remember, uh, including interrogations, two lie detector tests, and accusations that Sergeant Stone had stolen the document himself and ordered a criminal investigation into Sergeant Stone's two children, both of whom were employees of the sheriff's office. So this is all bad. I mean, this is flagrant public corruption that you would think would be illegal, but alas, the case is getting dismissed and the sheriff is getting qualified immunity because, quote, the law was not clearly established that Lieutenant Peck's speech fell outside of her duties as a public employee and the investigations of Sergeant Stone and his children constituted adverse employment actions. In the Supreme Court context, we might say something like it's stupid but constitutional. That's kind of what plays out here. This is shameless public corruption, but the courts are allowing it to happen anyway to try and adhere to pre-existing uh, judicial precedent. But we'll give you both of those opinions so you can read through them at the Ninth and Tenth Circuits. In some general research news, um, a website called City Observatory has a study out where they basically go through American neighborhoods and note that American neighborhoods are becoming more integrated over time and that integration is happening at a faster pace. Uh, from the story on that, I've got three separate quotes to give you. They say, first, the data shows that growing diversity and modestly declining segregation of U.S. neighborhoods. The share of all neighborhoods that were predominantly white in the United States declined from 67 percent in the 1970 to 1990 period to 57 percent in the 1990 to 2010 period. Over this time period, the pace of transition to more racially mixed neighborhoods accelerated. One in four predominantly white neighborhoods in 1970 became racially mixed over the next two decades. In 1990, one in three of predominantly white neighborhoods became racially mixed. Uh, second, black-white neighborhoods became much more stable. Black-white neighborhoods were those between 10 and 50% non-Hispanic black and less than 10% Hispanic or non-Hispanic Asian. Of black-white neighborhoods in 1970, 40% transitioned away from being racially mixed in the 20 years between 1970 and 1990. But of the black-white neighborhoods in 1990, only 20% transitioned away from being racially mixed between 1990 and 2010. So basically, your, your uh, rate of disintegration dropped by half. Uh, third, the number of truly multi-ethnic neighborhoods nearly doubled from about 1.6% of all neighborhoods in the 1970 to 1990 period to about 3% of all neighborhoods in the 1990 to 2010 period. Uh, defining multi-ethnic is uh, tracks that were at least 10% non-Hispanic black, at least 10% Hispanic or non-Hispanic Asian, and at least 40% non-Hispanic white. Once they became multi-ethnic from 1990 to 2010, about 90% of them remain multi-ethnic for the next 20 years. So that's good news because that has follow-on effects 
for crime reduction, public perception of people. Basically, when you're living with folks, you're less likely to see them as the enemy all the time, which is a very significant problem when it comes to implicit bias, implicit association, the way our court system works, the way our policing works. So having integrated neighborhoods is a good thing. Uh, out of ProPublica, they've got a long read titled Innocent But Still Guilty, basically covering prosecutors' abuse of Alford pleas. We've talked about them before. Essentially, an Alford plea is where you say to the court that you're innocent. You are asserting that you are, in fact, not guilty, but you admit that the state has enough evidence to convict you if you went to trial. From a practical standpoint, it's identical to a guilty plea. There is no substantive you know, improvement for having an Alfred plea, except in very limited circumstances that I'm not going to go into here, but essentially they're useless. So what you'll have happen is you'll have people who are, for example, convicted of murder. And then rather than let them out, when it turns out evidence shows up that they didn't do it, prosecutors will instead say, go ahead and enter an Alfred plea and we'll let you out for time served. So these people take it so they can get out, but end up with felony convictions as murderers for the rest of their life. So we give you that link so you can read through it. Uh, and then University of Washington researchers have put together a story looking at Twitter and the Russia propaganda account. So basically Twitter has notified its users of I think it was over a thousand accounts. Don't quote me on the number, but it was a lot of them. Basically, these Twitter accounts that were set up by Russia, the Russian government, um, and were very active in the 2016 election. They've sent out notices of who the accounts are, and if you have interacted with them, they've given you a heads up. So these researchers looked at the most prolific Russia propaganda accounts and what things they were talking about and what they were boosting and so on. And they particularly looked at the Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, All Lives Matter hashtags. Uh, and what they found essentially was that the most prominent people on both sides of the argument were actually Russian trolls. Uh, from the story, they say, quote, when Twitter released the first batch of accounts related to the RU-IRA troll factories, we cross-referenced those with our hashtag Black Lives Matter and hashtag Blue Lives Matter data set, and some of the most active and most influential accounts on both sides were RU-IRA trolls. So they've got charts in this particular study that I'm going to give you the link to it so you can check it out. But essentially on one side, you have a homogenous group of uh, Black Lives Matter supporters on the other side, you have basically six different subgroups of what we would call conservative people. So you have the alt-right and the, the typical conservatives and whatever else. And you can check these groups based on their most common hashtags. So hashtag MAGA, hashtag 2A, hashtag alt-right, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you can see the interaction among these groups between each other and among the broader audience when it comes to Russian trolls. If you have any interest in computer science, it's very cool. It's very cool politically if you can get through the, the academic speak. But from my standpoint as a guy who's both politically oriented and comp sci background, I thought it was pretty nifty. Uh, in criminal justice news at the federal level. So the inspector general has confirmed that General John Kelly is, in fact, a piece of shit. So we've talked about him before. I'm not a fan, have not been a fan for some time, was very leery of him because in one of my prior episodes, I said, dude broke the law when he was secretary of Homeland Security. And I caught flack for it because apparently that's not a nice thing to say to someone who's a general. Well, as part of the review by the Homeland Security Inspector General Service. So basically, nearly all government departments have an inspector general to look into allegations of wrongdoing. Well, as part of this from the story, it says, quote, 
on, and this is a story from Slate kind of laying out what has gone on. Uh, story says, quote, on January 27th, 2017, Donald Trump issued an executive order prohibiting individuals from seven Muslim-majority countries from entering the United States. In the following days, several federal judges blocked parts of the ban, and one week later, U.S. District Court Judge James Robart froze the entire thing. Civil rights groups alleged that Customs and Border Protection officers charged with enforcing the policy had violated those court orders, limiting their authority. On Thursday, the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Inspector General released a lengthy report confirming that CPB, CBP did, in fact, break the law in its implementation of Trump's first travel ban. Basically, these people were telling judges to fuck off. They were holding people incommunicado, not allowing them to see lawyers, um, ignoring – if you were on Twitter at the time, it was a really crazy time. This was before we had the podcast. But you had basically blow-by-blow uh, blow accounts from attorneys at Dulles, actual Congress critters showing up at times, uh, being blocked from going anywhere by Customs and Border Patrol at Jen, uh, John Kelly's direction. Um, total violation of the law. Probably going to get away with it anyway because, of course, now he's the chief of staff. Uh, but it's nice to know that the government did, in fact, confirm that I was right. Uh, also, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement is still locking people up in solitary confinement as punishment for not participating in a quote-unquote voluntary labor program. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, officials at a privately run Immigration and Customs Enforcement Detention Center in rural Georgia locked an immigrant detainee in solitary confinement last November as punishment for encouraging fellow detainees to stop working in a labor program that ICE says is strictly voluntary anyway. Uh, Shoab Ahmed, a 24-year-old who immigrated to America to escape political persecution in Bangladesh, uh, told The Intercept, that's the company that's reporting this, that the privately run detention center placed him in isolation for 10 days after an officer overheard him simply saying, quote, no work tomorrow, unquote. Ahmed said he was just expressing frustration over the detention center run by prison contractor Core Civic, having delayed his weekly paycheck of $20 for work in the facility's kitchen. These folks get paid a dollar a day, by the way. Uh, in state-by-state -state news out of Alaska and Anchorage, the, uh, the state has admitted that police and prosecutors were eavesdropping on conversations between defendants and their attorneys and recording them. From the story, it says, quote, for four years, a tucked away monitoring system in a certain visitation room at the Anchorage jail recorded conversations between attorneys and their clients, defendants in criminal court without anyone knowing and that anyone is a bit of an exaggeration. The police and the prosecutors knew. Uh, Quinlan Steiner, the state public defender in December, learned from the state that the recordings were secretly and routinely made from 2012 to 2016. The files were automatically recorded over every 30 days. The new information was circulated last month to about 120 Alaska criminal defense lawyers. State and this is the funny part. State corrections officials say the recordings were not listened to or provided to law enforcement. Generally, that's a magic word. Uh, it's a magic word because it continues, quote, in one case, that did happen. If you actually think it was only one case, I do, in fact, have oceanfront property in Oklahoma I would love to sell you. So that's out of Alaska. Uh, in Arizona, video has been released of Customs and Border Patrol officers kicking over jugs of water and other supplies that folks leave to make sure that any you know folks don't die in the desert. CBP is like, fuck it, we're just going to go ahead and toss it anyway. Uh, from the story says, quote, United States Border Patrol agents routinely vandalize containers of water and other supplies left in the Arizona desert. 
condemning people to die of thirst in baking temperatures. In a report published on Wednesday, uh, two Tucson-based humanitarian groups said the agents committed the alleged sabotage with impunity in an attempt to deter and punish people who illegally cross from Mexico. So if you happen to cross the border illegally, you deserve to die, apparently. That's the view of Customs and Border Patrol. In California, we got four stories there out of Auburn. A, <laughs> this is not a police story. This is just ridiculous bullshit. Uh, a homeowners association, as a sidebar, I tell people all the time, HOAs are proof that the Soviets won the Cold War. A homeowners association in Auburn has ordered all residents to keep their garage doors open or face a $200 per day fine. From the story, it says, quote, the rule calls for residents with garages to keep them open from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday through Friday. Apparently, there was a report that someone was having another person live in their garage, which violated the restrictive covenants for this particular development. So they have now ordered everyone to give burglars basically free access. I mean, can you imagine having your garage door open during the hours when you're at work? If I wanted to go rob someone, that would be the place to go. I would check out that neighborhood quickly. Because you have free picking, so whatever the hell's in your uh, garage, it's ridiculous. Uh, so that's out of Auburn and Daly City. Family called family of a uh, Warren Ragudo, 34 years old, called police uh, to have basically him be checked on because he was having a psychotic episode. Uh, he was acting out of control, yelling, screaming and shaking, and growling at one point. Uh, officers, you already know how this is going. Officers arrived. Ragudo became angry. And from the story, it says, quote, he didn't attack them, but was physically uncooperative when the officers needed to bring him under control to assess whether he needed a psychiatric evaluation. So that's all very uh, bland way of saying they tased him until he died. So this guy is now dead. That is uh, in daily uh, in Long Beach. 24 year old Luis Perez has been killed by the Long Beach police for bicycle infractions. Yes, you heard that correctly uh, from the story. It says, quote, after being pulled over for the bicycle infractions, Perez allegedly refused to comply with what police said were lawful detention commands. Officials did not say why they were attempting to detain Perez for these traffic violations, and police are not releasing any further details or the name of the officer involved. So just know, if you commit a bicycle infraction in California, you too deserve to die. Uh, in Los Angeles, the third rule of Fisk, there are no new stories, only new names and new jurisdictions. Uh, you might remember we talked about Maryland and how the police were running an entire drug distribution ring. Uh, well, Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy has been charged with operating a full-blown drug trafficking operation uh, under using the badge, essentially. From the story, it says, quote, a Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy has been charged with operating a large-scale drug trafficking scheme in which he boasted that he hired other law enforcement officers to provide security to dealers and could assault people for his clients. Deputy Kenneth Collins and three other men were arrested by FBI agents Tuesday morning in a sting operation when they arrived to what they thought was a drug deal. Last year, an undercover agent met with Collins while posing as the relative of a wealthy investor looking to finance an illegal marijuana grow house. The deputy offered to provide security and said he had three teams already working in the region, including one that was protecting an illegal marijuana grow house disguised as an auto repair shop. At another meeting to discuss the security plan for the grow house, Collins showed off his sheriff's badge and lifted his shirt to show a gun in his waistband. He later said that he could provide teams of security made up of cops who travel with guns and boasted that he and two comrades were hired by a client to set ablaze an $85,000 Cadillac truck in order to intimidate someone. 
So that is your Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. And I got to tell you, stuff like this doesn't happen without coworkers knowing about it. So even though four guys have been arrested, you got to imagine there are more deputies that knew this was going on. So those stories are out of California. In Colorado, out of Colorado Springs, taxpayers will be shelling out uh, $2,471,350 to settle a sex discrimination claim by several of the police department uh, officers. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, the officers claimed that a physical abilities test that was adopted by the department discriminated against women over 40. Consequences within the department for failing the mandatory test included being put on light duty status and a six-month performance improvement plan. Those who didn't pass the test after six months were terminated. So that's out of Colorado. That's going to be a lot of money for taxpayers to pay out on that one. Uh, in Florida, we got a couple of stories down there in Fort Lauderdale. So this is the one that the Law 140 is going to be about. There's a video that went viral on Twitter of Customs and Border Patrol boarding a Greyhound bus and asking every single person for proof of citizenship. So we're going to talk about that. But the gist of it is that's totally legal and it sucks. Uh, out of Palm Beach County, hey, this is this. <laughs> so taking the third rule of Fisk a bit far when you have two stories in the same week, uh, Sheriff's Deputy Marquita Perez has been arrested for dealing drugs in her case. Uh, she had more than 16 pounds of marijuana on her. Uh, her husband was arrested first and tried to claim that his wife didn't know anything about it. Of course, the wife, the deputy, denied that she knew anything about it, but you will be shocked to find out that that was a lie. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, deputies executed a search warrant at the couple's home and found 16.87 pounds of marijuana divvied up into numerous heat-sealed bags and a duffel bag, suitcase, trunk, and backpack. DNA testing showed the couple as contributors to DNA on at least four bags of marijuana, meaning the wife knew what was going on. The sheriff's deputy lied to investigators. Uh, at Avero Beach, police have been caught on security camera basically disconnecting a guy's surveillance system, even though they had no reason to talk to him at all. Uh, so this started out as a post on Facebook. That's when I first saw it. Eventually, the media picked it up. From the story, it says, quote, an Indian River County man feels his privacy was violated after he captured Vero Beach police disconnecting a surveillance camera outside his front door. Police were investigating a crime the man says he had nothing to do with. Uh, spoiler alert, that ends up being true. Uh, surveillance video from the apartment captured the two officers knocking on the door and waiting for an answer. However, the tenant, who does not want to be identified by name, was at work. Shortly after the officers are seen knocking on the door, one looks up at the surveillance cameras and reaches towards it, then the video goes black. It turned out the tenant was not the man police were looking for, but resembled the man they ended up arresting. All black people look alike. If you don't know that, that's one of the rules that police follow. Uh, regardless, Vero Beach Police Chief David Curry says he stands behind his officers' actions and said they acted legally. Uh, quote, in law enforcement, we don't want to be at a disadvantage. We try to be at an advantage as best we can. If that was a safety precaution and a tactical precaution to make them safer, then I stand behind that. Notice the if there. He doesn't actually know that that's what it is. He just says, if it was that, then I am stand behind it. So just know that if police mistake you for someone else, they can dis completely disconnect your security apparatus and do absolutely nothing about it, and you just got to deal with it. Uh, out of Illinois, we've got two stories out of Chicago. Uh, first, Chicago police have only solved 17.2% of murders in the city. That is the lowest murder clearance rate in 50 years. So as crime goes up, if you're not solving crime, it's just going to keep going up. I mean, if you can commit crimes and get away with it, your habitual offenders are going to keep offending. 
Uh, also out of Chicago, the murder convictions have been thrown out against Jamie Hawd. I think that's how you pronounce it. I might be butchering that. Uh, but basically, evidence came out that this kid was tortured into confessing. He's been in prison for 21 years. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, A Cook County judge on Thursday cited torture by Chicago police for freeing a man who spent 21 years in prison for two 1997 murders. Police used an industrial-strength paper cutter to slice off the toes of Jamie Hawd's shoes and threatened to cut off the 17-year-old's toes if he didn't confess to the murders of alleged gang members Jason Gorrell and Jose Morales. The Illinois Torture Inquiry and Relief Commission also noted the murder investigation involved a Chicago police detective who is currently serving a life sentence for racketeering and drug conspiracy. Testimony at his trial indicated Detective Joseph Miedzganowski... I'm totally fucking that up. Uh, M-I-E-D-Z-I-A-N-O-W-S-K-I. It sounds Polish. Uh, abused suspects and fixed cases. The commission sent the case back to Cook County prosecutors for resolution. The state's attorney conviction integrity unit uh, and Howard's attorneys settled on resentencing Howard for time served and setting him free. So he's still going to be a felon for crimes that he didn't actually commit, uh, but he's going to be released. Now, sidebar, every district attorney's office everywhere in the country should have a conviction integrity unit. Uh, in Kentucky, at a prospect, text messages have been released from Assistant Police Chief Todd Shaw, basically training a Louisville Metro police recruit that he needs to shoot black people more often. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, a former assistant prospect police chief sent numerous racist messages to a Louisville Metro police recruit, including one that said if he caught black juveniles smoking marijuana, he should shoot them. While Shaw and the recruit were discussing a training scenario in which the recruit was to write a paper on, quote, the right thing to do, if he caught three juveniles smoking marijuana, Shaw stated in a text message, quote, fuck the right thing. If black, shoot them. Shaw, instructing the recruit how to handle parents of the juvenile caught smoking pot, wrote, quote, If mom is hot, then fuck her. If dad is hot, then handcuff him and make him suck my dick. Unless daddy is black, then shoot him. Uh, his lawyer says, quote, Actions speak louder than words, and Mr. Shaw's actions during his career speak for themselves. He is not a racist in any sense of the word. Uh, yeah, okay. In Maryland, fourth rule of Fisk, in Baltimore, police chief Kevin Davis has been fired because he has not done enough to stop crime in that particular city. From the story, it says, quote, Mayor Catherine Pugh fired Baltimore's top cop Friday, saying she had grown impatient with Commissioner Kevin Davis's inability to stem the historic pace of killings in the city now stretching into its third year. She named Deputy Commissioner Daryl D. D'Souza, the top commander in the police department's patrol bureau, as Davis's replacement effective immediately, and said she would ask the city council to make the appointment permanent. She said, quote, crime is now spilling out all over the city and we've got to focus. I am charging D'Souza and his staff to get on top of it, to reduce the numbers and to reduce them quickly. Also in Baltimore, a judge has thrown out all charges against 30-year-old Demetrius Smith. And on top of that, gave a what we call a bench slap against the prosecutor. Uh, from the story, says, quote, in a hearing in Baltimore City Circuit Court, a judge threw out Demetrius Smith's conviction for a shooting. He has long insisted he did not commit and chastised the prosecutor in the case for making several misrepresentations to the court. Uh, they go on, Smith maintained he had not committed the crime, but he'd earlier been wrongfully convicted in a separate murder case and believed he would well be found guilty again. Sidebar, that ends up being true as well. 
Uh, Alfred pleas allowed defendants to assert their innocence while accepting convictions in exchange for reduced sentences. We talked about that. This is one of those cases where that ended up coming out. Uh, as part of Smith's deal, Baltimore prosecutor Richard Gibson agreed to allow the judge, Judge Barry Williams, full discretion over changes to Smith's sentence, but Smith was going to enter this Alfred plea. Uh, but Smith pressed to undo it last July when a key witness recanted, and on top of that, he actually was exonerated in the murder case. Uh, but when that happened, D.A. Gibson tried to block it, and he told the judge that the judge did not have authority to change Smith's sentence, even though that was not true. Uh, the DA also claimed that the murder and shooting cases didn't have any detectives in common, which, in fact, they did. So that was a lie. The, you know, papers don't say they're lying, but just know that was a lie. Uh, Judge Williams angrily scolded DA Gibson for making, quote, on-the-fly statements that weren't rooted in fact. Uh, Judge Williams then wiped away the shooting conviction from Smith's record, saying that it was, it was in the interest of justice, adding, quote, there's too much going on to leave it as is. Maryland is a crazy, crazy place. Uh, in Michigan, out of Jackson, there's a story on prison conditions and how uh, basically the, the inmates are being served really disgusting shit and they're dying from it. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, maggots, rotten food, unsanitary kitchens, staff shortages, calorie shortages, sick inmates, angry inmates, drug dealing kitchen employees, employees having sex with inmates, quarantines. These are the issues that documents show and inmates say are taking place in Michigan's prison kitchens in 2018, which sounds just like what we heard about them in 2015. And there's a hyperlink to an earlier story where it has a lot of this exact same stuff. Uh, they continue, quote, we spoke earlier this month with several inmates at the G. Robert Cotton Correctional Facility in Jackson who allege that the kitchen is highly unsanitary. Trinity regularly serves rotten or undercooked food and inmates aren't provided with enough calories. So basically it's state sanctioned torture. Uh, also in Michigan, ICE has detained a doctor in Kalamazoo and is planning to deport him to Poland because this... Our entire immigration system is fucked. Let me just go ahead and say that. The Law 140 is only covering one small piece of it, but our entire immigration system is fucked. From the story, it says, quote, A respected doctor at Kalamazoo's Bronson Methodist Hospital, who has been living in America for nearly 40 years, finds himself in jail after U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents took him from his home in handcuffs. Lucas Niek is an internal medicine doctor putting in long hours as a hospitalist in, for Bronson. His co-workers describe him as the model of what a physician should be. And now he is sitting in a jail cell in Calhoun County with no idea of when or if he will be free to return to his patients and his family. So why is this guy being detained? Well, it turns out roughly 30-something years ago, he pled guilty to misdemeanor destruction of property and for possession of stolen goods back when he was 17, when he was a teenager. So he's been here for 40 years. He pled guilty to something that happened decades ago, and now ICE is deciding they're going to go ahead and deport him to Poland, where he's never been. He moved here to America when he was three. Doesn't speak Polish, doesn't know anyone over there, but we're going to kick his ass out anyway. Stupid. Uh, out of New York, New York City, you know, we, God, I really thought this was a joke. So Avi Wolf sent this to me on Twitter, and he said that he thought it was a joke, and I saw it, and I'm like, this has got to be a fucking joke. But no, it's not. Uh, so apparently, you've all heard the phrase, one law for me, another for thee. Apparently, that's like serious with the NYPD. So the NYPD Patrolman's Benevolent Association gives out 
what are actually called get-out-of-jail-free cards that they give to current cops and retirees. They give current cops 30 a year, they give retirees a 20 a year, and they can give them to whoever they want. And because the unions are so strong in New England, the department actually follows them. You present a get-out-of-jail-free card, you, in fact, get to go home. Uh, Well, the PBA has reduced the number that they're giving out. So instead of getting 30 a year, you only get 20 a year if you're active duty. And if you're retired, instead of getting 20, you get 10. And of course, police are pissed because they feel entitled to have these special cards. Actual quote from the story, quote, they are treating active members like shit and they are treating retired members even worse than shit. All the cops I spoke to were very disappointed. They couldn't hand them out as Christmas gifts. Jesus Christ. I don't know that I'm ever going up to New England because all the stories I hear out of New York City, like I I would not want to go up there. I don't know. So in North Carolina news, out of Charlotte, Mecklenburg, we have a sheriff's deputy who killed another sheriff's deputy. Turns out they were married. Uh, Charlotte, Mecklenburg police department officers responded to a call around 4.10 p.m. about a domestic violence assault with a deadly weapon. Officers found a man with a gunshot wound inside the home. The victim, 35-year-old deputy sheriff James Hawkins, was pronounced dead at the scene. The sheriff's office confirmed that Hawkins' wife, Deputy Sheriff Rataba Hawkins, was also involved in the shooting. That's the that's paper speak for she did it. Uh, out of Laurenburg, there's a new study by the BBC where uh, basically they're finding a whole bunch of women who are being sexually harassed and in some cases sexually assaulted in exchange for not being evicted from public housing. Uh, they talk about one particular lady, and I do not have her first name in my notes, even though I should. Her, her last name is Sellers. So from the story, it says, quote, Mrs. Sellers remembers the first time the agency's inspector, a former North Carolina state police officer named Eric Pender, came to the property with a clipboard in hand. As she continued to clean, she says the conversation turned from the house to Sellers' personal life. Where's your boyfriend? Why you don't have a man here cleaning? The police officer asked her, former police officer. Seller says, and I'm like, I don't have time for a man. I just got out of prison. I'm trying to get my life right. Undeterred, Seller said Officer Pender asked her if she gives head or if she'd ever been paid for sex, implying that his signature on the inspection for her home was the only thing standing between her and a place to live. At one point, she says he called her into the bathroom under the pretense of showing her a needed repair. She says he instead pulled her in by her hips, blocked the doorway, and took out his penis. She managed to push him out of the way. She was horrified, and she says it was the first in a string of incidents. It was continuous. She says he would never sign each time he came. It was like, you owe me before I sign this paper, and you got to make a decision. Now, Pender was fired from the North Carolina State Highway Patrol back in 2007. Uh, I tried to research it. We don't actually know why, but there was a string of hirings, or firings rather, back during this time period uh, following an investigation of public corruption in the Highway Patrol when it came out that several deputies were doing things like having sex with detainees in their patrol cars. So it seems to fit that particular narrative going on here. Uh, also, God, sometimes North Carolina is stupid as hell, too. Our prisons are banning the book The New Jim Crow. If you've not read it, if you've not heard about it, it's a book on mass incarceration and racial disparities in the justice system, which at this point, if you've been listening to this podcast for the past few months, you know is basically fact, and there's a shitload of data to back it up. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, In the eight years since its publication, The New Jim Crow 
a book by Michelle Alexander that explores the phenomenon of mass incarceration, has sold well over a million copies, been compared to the work of W.E.B. Dubois, and been cited in the legal decisions to end stop-and-frisk and sentencing laws. In addition, it's been quoted passionately on stage at the Academy Awards. But for the 130,000 adults in prison in North Carolina, and in Florida as well, the book is strictly off-limits. In North Carolina's prisons, the new Jim Crow has been banned multiple times, most recently on February 24th of 2017, when it was deemed, quote, likely to provoke confrontation between racial groups, unquote. State policy dictates that such bans can last only for a year, so the book will be permitted in the state's prisons late next month unless it is banned again, which it probably will be. I don't know why. Well, I do know why. I was going to say I don't know why we wouldn't want people to get factual information, but you don't want prisoners to know how grossly unfair they're being treated because then they might do things like have a fucking uprising. Uh, So we do have some good news in North Carolina. Don't let it be said that I don't share good news. Uh, So last week we had a snowstorm that ended up being much larger than people anticipated. We initially thought it was only going to be an inch or so. We ended up in my part of Durham. We got about 10 inches. Uh, Durham police officer J.J. Berizande saved two women from an icy creek. So basically this lady's car went down an embankment, ended up in a creek. The car was fully submerged. The two of them were standing in this ice-cold water up to their waist. Uh, Corporal Berizande just jumped in and rescued them both. So one woman was in her 30s, one was in her 60s. So props to him. We do have some good police out there. Uh, In Ohio, out of Columbus... So there's an unknown black man pictured sitting outside of a Kroger shopping center in a hoodie with his hands in front of him. And there's an officer standing about 15 feet away with his pistol drawn and it's held behind his back. And this picture was shared on Facebook. People talked about it and no one really knew what was going on. Well, the uh, police have issued a statement to the local media saying that this guy was suicidal and armed with a knife. Now, he may very well have been suicidal. Why you would pull a gun in anticipation of killing him, I don't really know. Uh, But you look, you can see his hands. There is no knife. And subsequent reports on Twitter, I don't know if they're accurate or not, say that he was searched and no knife was found. So, well, that is what it is. You hear the phrase, a picture's worth a thousand words. It's just very disheartening to see that's how Columbus conducts itself. Uh, Out of Franklin County, speaking of disappointing ways that the police conduct themselves. Uh, A deputy sheriff shot and killed 16-year-old Joseph Haynes inside a courthouse. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, Chaos unfolded Wednesday afternoon in a hallway outside a Franklin County courtroom when a scuffle involving a teenage defendant, his family members, and a deputy ended in fatal gunfire. The Franklin County Sheriff's Office deputy, who was knocked to the ground, fired a single shot, killing 16-year-old Joseph Edward Haynes of the Hilltop. Joseph was a little out of sorts because of how things went at the hearing. That's what his attorney told the Columbus Dispatch. Quote, the officer threatened to lock him up and a scuffle broke out. Joseph was resisting and that's when there was a scuffle. The attorney said that she backed away as a bunch of people tried to break up the struggle, then heard the gunshot. Haynes was hit by the bullet in the abdomen and rushed to Ohio Health Grant Medical Center where he was pronounced dead. The deputy was taken to Ohio Health Ohio Health Riverside Methodist Hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Here's my problem. When you go into a courthouse, there are metal detectors. There are wands. There are conveyor belts with x-ray machines. Some cases you got dogs that'll sniff you for contraband. This kid was unarmed. They knew he was unarmed. This is just part of the job. The 
Kid does not have a weapon by virtue of being inside the courthouse. There's no basis for you to shoot him, even if he's being pissed, even if there's a scuffle. You tase him, you take out your nightstick, and you beat the shit out of him, but you don't have to kill him. We need to get to a point where we recognize you don't have to meet every potential act of you know resistance as something that merits the death penalty. That's not how the fucking country is supposed to work. Uh, out of Oklahoma, and speaking of things that the country is not supposed to work, out of Tulsa, a 41-year-old unarmed black man, Adam James, has had all charges against him dismissed after spending months trying to prove that he was arrested for over-complying. Yes, that is an actual phrase. Uh, basically, the based on police reports and subsequent investigation, a pair of sheriff's deputies pulled him over, thinking that he was driving while intoxicated. They eventually arrested him for that, and their basis for doing so, in part, included the fact that, quote, Adam James continuously raised his hands in the air. He was over-obeying. Uh, basically, the guy was terrified he was going to get a fucking shot because he's black and the officers are white. And this is the same city where killer cop Shannon Kepler killed a 19-year-old black kid and had three mistrials on the murder charges. Killer cop Shelby Fields executed Terrence Crutcher and was found not guilty by a jury. And killer cops killed unarmed black man, 29-year-old Joshua Bari, just a couple months ago. We're going to let all of that ride. He got arrested for DWI because he kept putting his hands in the air. The blood, he had a blood draw done, which is done for a lot of DWI cases. It's not all of them. Sometimes you just get a breath test, and if you blow too high, that's a wrap. But a blood draw is done often, and those blood samples get sent off for testing. And after the tests were done and came back, he didn't have anything in his system. He was, in fact, totally not guilty of anything. So the case was dismissed, but that's not good enough for the police or the prosecutor. The prosecutor backed up the police and said, we're only doing this because these are preliminary results and the preliminary results showing there's nothing in his system was enough for reasonable doubt. So the DA just kind of washed his hands of it. Uh, but the sheriff, Sheriff Vic Regalado, uh, said, quote, he saw no evidence of racial profiling and left open that James may have been under the influence of something else that was not detected. That is not uncommon for that to happen, Regalado said of James's negative blood test results. The reason why is when it does happen, it could be a variety of different things. It could include those tests only test for certain intoxicants. It doesn't test for synthetic drugs, inhalants, and things like that. If that's the case, if it was, quote, not uncommon you would see a lot more DUIs getting dismissed. So that's bullshit from the police. The fact is they arrested this guy because they were trying to show off. You learn if you read further down the story uh, that the deputy who arrested him, his wife was with him in the car during the traffic stop and arrest. So basically he was trying to be a cowboy and show off for the missus. Uh, that's out of Oklahoma. In Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, police covered up an officer's DUI and threatened assault. From the story, it says, quote, Last month, after a grand jury investigation, Philadelphia police officer Kevin Klein was charged with driving while intoxicated, smashing his personal vehicle into an occupied SUV outside a strip club on Christmas Eve, and then pulling a service gun on witnesses who chased him down. The grand jury presentment also sheds light on how police handled the incident, alleging that the supervising officer on the scene ordered a colleague to drive Klein home while doing nothing to test him for drugs or alcohol or to seek witnesses. According to the report, the supervisor, Sergeant Thomas Cairns, told the grand jurors, quote, If I was in the habit of gathering information about crimes and looking for witnesses, I could never get anything done. It's just not practical. Holy shit. 
I see why Larry Krasner got elected DA. I hope he can help clean house because if that's the type of police you got, y'all are in fucking trouble. Uh, out of Pittsburgh, taxpayers are going to shell out five and a half million dollars to Leon Ford. This is the guy who was shot and paralyzed back in 2012 by killer cop David Derbish. I guess technically he's not a killer cop since Ford didn't die, but he certainly tried. Uh, basically, Ford was shot after a traffic stop and he ended up being paralyzed. So now he's going to have to deal with that for the rest of his life. The city's going to give him five and a half million dollars. Uh, out of Tennessee in Memphis, the Barber Police. And this barber is not a city, it's a profession. Uh, the barber police cited Elias Zarate for the heinous, heinous crime of cutting hair without a high school diploma. So this is another one of the long read stories in Reason Magazine. Uh, in a prior podcast, we talked about their licensing laws and how absurd it is that to be a cosmetologist, you got to have like this bazillion hours of training that you don't have to have to be a cop. Uh, well, this is the same type of thing, but applied to barbers. Uh, basically, Tennessee barber cops caught up with Elias Zarate on January 18th of 2017. Zarate was working upstairs at the Revolution Studio, a small barber shop on Trendy Front Street in downtown Memphis. The job, which he had held for only a few weeks before getting busted, was like a dream come true. He learned to cut hair while helping out in his uncle's barbershop as a kid, and he had honed his skills over the years by cutting his siblings and friends' hair. At Revolution, Zarate had served clientele from ordinary working class to members of the Memphis Grizzlies, the local NBA team. He was hit with a $1,500 penalty, followed by $600 in additional fees that included court costs, attorney's fees, and the expense of the investigation that had busted him. Of course, if you notice that shitload of money, this is all this is. This is a money-making scheme for the government, and it's a way for other barbers to stop new competitors from entering into the industry. So we give you the link to that story that's in Tennessee, out of Texas, in Comal County, or Comal, I don't know how to pronounce it, apologies to my Texas listeners. Uh, Judge Jack Robison interrupted jury deliberations in a human trafficking case to tell the jurors that God told him the defendant was not guilty. Only in Texas, man. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, A Comal County judge said God told him to intervene in jury deliberations to sway jurors to return a not guilty verdict in the trial of a Buddha woman, B-U-D-A or Buddha. Y'all got some really weird fucking cities in Texas. Uh, accused of trafficking a teen girl for sex. Judge Jack Robinson apologized to jurors for the interruption, but defended his actions by telling them, quote, When God tells me I got to do something, I got to do it. The jury went against the judge's wishes, finding Gloria Romero Perez guilty of continuous trafficking of a person and later sentenced her to 25 years in prison. Uh, this guy's got to get removed from the bench. I mean, it's that's fucking crazy. Uh, out of Mesquite, Texas, Lindo Jones has filed a civil rights lawsuit against the Mesquite PD. Uh, you might remember him. We talked about him in episode 38. This is the guy who was shot for breaking into his own truck. The police thought he was a thief. As he's trying to explain, they just fucking blew him away because they can. Then they took him to the hospital, had him handcuffed to the gurney so that it made it difficult for them to operate on him. Uh, and eventually dismissed all charges because they realized that, in fact, he owned the truck that they were supposedly thought he was breaking into. Uh, out of Utah, the Salt Lake Tribune has a study on their uh, warrants, and what they find is that most judges are approving warrants in less than 10 minutes. From the story, it says, quote, 27 seconds. That's all the time it took for a Utah judge to sign off on an officer's request to search phone records in a homicide investigation. 
In another case, it took 38 seconds to get a warrant to search a hard drive. And 48 seconds after asking, a judge gave permission for officers to break into a safe. They then go on and note that more than half of all search warrant requests uh, in last year were approved in 10 minutes or less. So a lot of times in court decisions and in talking with police, they make it out like getting a warrant is just this huge onerous requirement and it's so hard to do. In reality, it's not. Like, it's gotten so easy at this point. Nowadays, they could do it digitally. Like, they've got the little laptops in their cars. They can just type in some stuff, submit an e-request for a search warrant, and a magistrate judge will approve it remotely. Um, so that is from Utah. That is all the state-by-state news. Every now and again, we do cover stuff in other countries. And we do have a story out of Canada that is just humorous. Uh, in Montreal, Simon LaPrice created a life-size model of a DeLorean DMC-12. That's the car from Back to the Future. Uh, He used a bunch of snow outside of his home, created this car in the street. Well, it evidently looked believable enough that a cop drove by and was going to write the snow car a ticket, actually called for backup, uh, and you see pictures on Facebook of him taking pictures of the police officer and the backup car. Uh, well, of course, it's all snow. So eventually, once the cops figured it out, they had fun with it. They wrote a ticket saying, ha, 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 you made our night. Of course, it's in French because apparently part of Canada speaks French. Um, but I thought it was interesting. So I will give you the uh, link to that. It takes a lot of effort to create a snowmobile, essentially. Um, I, can I say, I guess a snowmobile is an actual vehicle. So I guess that's not an accurate description. A snow sculpture of a car. Um, but we'll give you that story. It's really cool. Okay. That covers all of the criminal justice news for this week. If there's anything that I've missed, it is not intentional. I'm just trying to speed through this stuff. So again, we can keep the file sizes small. They will be included in a future podcast. So if I missed a story, just send me a tweet and say, Greg, I can't believe you missed this. You're fucking incompetent and we will make sure to include it. But for now, let's dive into our law 140 and talk a bit about Uh, basically border searches in a nutshell, but we're going to also give you an overview of how totally fucked our immigration system is. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through the break, folks. I am now at La Chateau T-Dot on the southwest section of Durham, North Carolina, recording the Law 140 for this week, and it's going to be on immigration. Now, there are a couple of things that I need to go over. First, I am not an immigration attorney. I have no experience with immigration law at all whatsoever. So me doing this Law 140 is based on me reading through statutes and case law and giving you my best interpretation that I can using my legal knowledge and expertise. Um, I also know that immigration is probably the most complicated area of law outside of tax, like in terms of just how dense it is, because you've got the law... You've got a um, Immigration Appeals Board, I think it's called. Don't quote me on that particular uh, Board of Immigration Appeals, BIA. That's what it is. Um, so there's actually a similar board in the tax context. You've got regulations. You've got a whole bunch of shit together. So it's very complex. It's very convoluted. If you're going to do it and do it well, it needs to be the only thing that you do. And I don't do that. I do drug defense. I believe in fighting the government on a regular basis. Um, not to say that immigration folks don't. I know they do, but I like being able to win every now and again, and it's kind of hard in the immigration world. also want to give a special shout-out again to Byron Mobley. He is at Byron underscore Mobley on Twitter. You'll see us talk back and forth every now and again. Uh, And AmyEP9, so at AmyEP9, because the two of them, I sent out a tweet 
saying, hey, we're going to try and do this for a law 140. Can my immigration friends point me in the right direction? And the two of them sent me basically what I needed to know. I mean, it's still a very rough crash course. Uh, I don't know how accurate this is going to be. I think it's accurate. But if you happen to be an immigration attorney and you hear it and you want to like saw your ears off because it's so bad, uh, tweet me corrections, let me know, and we will put them on the Twitter feed to make sure that everyone is fully informed on how this stuff works. So before we get into the court cases and the gist of it, remember that the news story that prompted this particular Law 140 is that uh, CBP, Customs and Border Patrol, uh, boarding the Greyhound bus in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, asking everyone present for identification to prove that they are, in fact, United States citizens. What you're going to find, as the spoiler alert for this Law 140, is that basically that is legal, even though it sucks. Uh, but it should not be legal, and that needs to be fixed. So let's go do some history for a little bit. As part of the American Revolution, the basis for why that stuff happened there was a lot of shit that England did in the colonies that the founders and the people around them were not happy with. One of them is this concept of a general warrant. So a general warrant is basically a warrant that gives a law enforcement officer discretion to search anyone, anywhere. Uh, there's no real specificity on who's to be searched, under what circumstances, what particular things. And in colonial times... These were done by what are called writs of assistance. So you have King George II, later King George III. They would authorize people acting on their behalf to conduct wide-ranging searches of anyone, anywhere, anytime, regardless of whether or not the people involved were suspected of a crime. They were actually described by James Madison as, quote, hated writs, uh, and basically spurred the colonists towards revolution because it's just so... It's like you've seen in movies where police can kind of come in and do whatever they want with you. That was normal daily life for the colonists. Uh, so writs of assistance gave the king's men carte blanche to search anything, your homes, your papers, your effects, uh, and they permitted officials to enter into houses, warehouses, shops, cellars to seize anything that was theoretically contraband goods. And the crazy part is they didn't have any judicial oversight. So they basically gave absolute unlimited discretion to the officers that are carrying them out, and the writs themselves were valid for the entire lifetime of the king who issued them. So you have King George II or Third issue this at one point, and they stay in effect until the king dies. So you basically have a writ that theoretically could last for decades without any kind of judicial oversight. So when we adopted the Constitution... The, the framework of the Constitution itself tried to limit some of that power, and then you later had the amendments in the Bill of Rights, and the Fourth Amendment in particular that we're going to cover. So just kind of keep all of that in the back of your mind, that the rebellion that led to the United States of America was rooted in part on general warrants and the fact that they suck. So second rule of Fisk, when you're going through law stuff, you got to start at the source. So Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution lays out the authority of Congress and specifically says that Congress has the power, quote, to establish a uniform rule of naturalization. So that becomes the express grant of authority for Congress to have exclusive power over the immigration laws. And then in Article 2, you have the authority of the president. So Section 1, you have, quote, the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. 
And then in section two, they provide the president shall be commander in chief of the army and navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. He may require the opinion and writing of the principal officer in each of the executive departments upon any subject relating to the duties of their respective offices, and he shall have power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States except in cases of impeachment. And then, of course, you go to the Bill of Rights, the Fourth Amendment. It says, quote, The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So that was basically trying to uh, describe the exact opposite of what a general warrant is. That is one of the key parts of the Bill of Rights. But as we've mentioned a lot of times, the courts have basically gutted that amendment. It doesn't really work the way that it's supposed to anymore. Uh, So as part of this, you have what is called the plenary powers doctrine, which basically means that if Congress has authority over something, that authority is absolute and the courts don't really get to look into it. And this doctrine really started to formulate with what is called the Chinese exclusion case. It's Che Chan Ping versus the United States. It's from 1889. And it's known as the Chinese exclusion case because it involves amendments to what was then known as the Chinese Exclusion Act. Essentially, you had this act that existed. You then had the Berlin Game Treaty, which was an agreement with the government of China. You then had Congress make modifications to the Chinese Exclusion Act that were challenged as being a violation of the treaty. And they took this to the courts to try and see whether or not the amendments could be undone. And what the Supreme Court said, in essence, was that the courts couldn't rule on that at all because Congress had plenary authority over everything relating to immigration. Uh, From the opinion, they say, quote, the appeal involves a consideration of the validity of the Act of Congress of October 1st, 1888, prohibiting Chinese laborers from entering the United States who had departed before its passage. Having a certificate issued under the Act of 1882, as amended by the Act of 1884, granting them permission to return. The validity of the Act is assailed as being, in effect, an expulsion from the country of Chinese laborers in violation of existing treaties between the United States and the government of China and of rights vested in them under the laws of Congress. The court then continued, saying, quote, If the power mentioned is vested in Congress... Any reflection upon its motives or the motives of any of its members in exercising it would be entirely uncalled for. This court is not a censor of the morals of other departments of the government. It is not invested with any authority to pass judgment upon the motives of their conduct. When once it is established, the Congress possesses the power to pass an act. Our province ends with its construction and its application to cases as they are presented for determination. So, That plenary powers doctrine is important because what you'll find is that pursuant to their authority to enact immigration rules, a uniform rule of naturalization, uh, Congress has enacted a lot of statutes. So the main one is the INA, the Immigration and Nationality Act, and that is basically the overwhelming bulk of everything relating to immigration. So it's chapter 8 of the United States Code. It was first passed in 1952. So before then, you had immigration statutes kind of sprinkled about the U.S. Code. Uh, The 1952 INA puts all of that together into chapter 8. 
Uh, it was revised in 1965. It was revised again in 1990, kind of tinkering with the quotas for admission from different countries. And pretty much everything you need to know about the immigration law is buried in there somewhere. So stuff about visas, green cards, lawful permanent residence, the language that President Trump relied on as part of the Muslim ban, it's all in the INA. And the INA is cited so often that, you know, in the context of a criminal defense, I would cite the code, you know, 14 USC, blah, 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 whatever it happens to be. The INA, you don't typically refer to the code at all, you know, 8 USC, whatever. They just say INA section 237 or whatever else, you know. Uh, so as a comparative thing, you do the same thing with the Internal Revenue Code. The Internal Revenue Code of 86 is so frequently cited that rather than citing the particular statute, you cite Internal Revenue Code section whatever. Uh, in addition to that, you have IRERA, or IRERA, I'm not sure quite how you pronounce it. Uh, it's the IIRAIRA, the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996, this basically, this did a couple things. So it changed the INA to provide that if you're an immigrant who's in the United States unlawfully for somewhere between six months and a year, so less than a year, but more than six months, uh, if you end up, you have to stay outside of the United States for three years if you try to come in legally. So if you're here illegally for six months, you want to apply for actually being here, you first have to leave and stay out for three years. If you're here for more than a year, so 366 days, and you decide that you want to apply to stay, you have to leave the United States for 10 years. And then if you return to the United States during those periods of exclusion without getting a pardon from the president first, you can't even apply for a waiver until 10 years have passed. So it's this, this wildly punitive change to the immigration rules that makes it damn near impossible for most people who are currently here illegally to ever get any kind of path to come out of the shadows to get a visa or whatever else. That's part of why the immigration discussion is such a clusterfuck is because of this particular law from 1996. In addition to that, IRERA created Section 287G. Now, we've talked about that before. That is the section of federal law that allows the federal government to enter into agreements with local and state police to enable those local officers to enforce federal immigration rules. And then, as a sidebar, it also banned uh, in-state tuition to anyone who's here illegally. So if you happen to be running a university, you know, North Carolina has 16 public universities and a residential high school, uh, you're not allowed to offer in-state tuition rates to anyone who is here illegally unless you also offer in-state tuition rates to everyone else in the entire country. Uh, so that's any school that receives Department of Education money, which is pretty much everybody because we all rely on student loans. So in the context of border searches, the discussion comes up about what is called the 100-mile constitution-free zone. That is how us defense attorneys refer to it. And a lot of folks have asked, is that an actual thing? Does it actually exist? And the answer is yes. It is actually part of the INA. So if you go to the INA, section 287.1, that provides the definitions, they define the external boundary of the country as, quote, the land boundaries and the territorial sea of the United States extending 12 nautical miles from the baselines of the United States determined in accordance with international law. So that's the external boundary of the country. And then a reasonable distance 
is defined as within 100 air miles from any external boundary of the United States or any shorter distance, which may be fixed by the chief patrol agent for CBP or the special agent in charge for ICE, or so far as the power to board and search aircraft is concerned, any distance fixed pursuant to paragraph B of this section. And it goes on to explain how they do that for airports. But the gist of it is the ability of Customs and Border Patrol, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, anyone else, to ask you for your papers uh, basically extends 100 miles from the border and 100 miles around any international airport, which, if you look at it, becomes the entire state of Florida, nearly all of New England, all of Hawaii, and pretty much every major population area everywhere else in the country. Uh, so folks are you know, freaked out by that. How is that legal? Well, it turns out the Supreme Court has interpreted the immigration laws on a lot of different cases, and all of them really don't turn out in favor of the citizens. So let's first talk about non-citizens. In a lot of cases, non-citizens don't get much of any rights in the immigration context. So they have some rights when it comes to due process, equal protection, because we mentioned both the 5th and 14th Amendments reference persons as opposed to citizens. But in the immigration context, they don't get much of anything at all. But one of the important cases is Shaughnessy versus United States X-Rail Mize. Uh, so X-Rail is an abbreviation for Latin of X-Relatione, which basically means on behalf of. Uh, so in this particular instance, Mize is what we would call the real party in interest. But because of the nature of the case, it was the United States government that was sued by the attorney general. So the attorney general is suing the United States. Uh, so this was a case that happened back in 1953. So it was argued in 52, decided in 53. Keep in mind, this is back during the Korean War. So Korea, I think, was 50 to 53. Don't quote me on that if you're a history buff. I, th I think that's it. Uh, but in the opinion, as they're laying out what has happened, the court says, quote, This case concerns an alien immigrant permanently excluded from the United States on security grounds, but stranded in his temporary haven on Ellis Island because other countries will not take him back. The issue is whether the attorney general's continued exclusion of respondent without a hearing amounts to an unlawful detention. So the courts may admit him temporarily to the United States on bond until arrangements are made for his departure abroad. Uh, basically, you read, as you go through the opinion, you find out this guy's lived in the United States for 25 years. He went to Hungary for 18 months. And then when he came back, the American government said, nope, we're not going to take you back because of confidential information that we have. And then other countries wouldn't let him in either. So he was trapped on Ellis Island. He got off the boat, walked on to Ellis Island, and was stuck there for the better part of a year because he couldn't leave and couldn't stay. So a district court basically said, this is pretty fucked up. You're trapped on this island. We're going to temporarily allow you into the country on bond until we can figure out what to do with you. The Court of Appeals affirmed it. That became the reason why the Attorney General was suing the United States itself as opposed to suing this guy in particular. Uh, from the opinion from the Supreme Court, they continue. They said, quote, the courts have long recognized the power to expel or exclude aliens as a fundamental sovereign attribute exercised by the government's political departments largely immune from judicial control. It is true that aliens who have once passed through our gates, even illegally, may be expelled only after proceedings conforming to traditional standards of fairness encompassed in due process of law. But an alien on the threshold of initial entry stands on a different footing. 
whatever the procedure authorized by Congress is, it is due process as far as an alien denied entry is concerned. So the gist of it is, if you're an alien, you're shit out of luck. That's, that's it in a nutshell. And even though they mention traditional standards of fairness and due process, what I found is that actual immigration's enforcement you know, proceedings are bullshit. You don't get, you're not entitled to a lawyer. The standard of proof is wildly different. The precedent sucks, et cetera, et cetera. So just kind of know, if you're not here as a citizen, you're pretty much screwed from the outset. Well, that brings up what we call the border exception to the Fourth Amendment. So it's not really an exception per se, um, but it relates to, remember, the Fourth Amendment prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures. And the courts have come up with these circumstances where they will allow a warrantless search to happen. So the most common one is what's called a consent search, where if you're giving the government permission to search your stuff, they don't need to go look for a warrant. Uh, there are assorted other exigent circumstances that have been developed over time, like if they're worried someone's going to destroy evidence during the time it takes to get a warrant, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, all of that stuff. Uh, so the border exception isn't really an exception. What happens is if you're being searched near the border, the courts have essentially said all of those searches are automatically reasonable because we want to try and make sure you're not bringing in contraband, you're not bringing in illegal immigrants or anything else. So they let a lot of that stuff slide. So you have two separate cases in 1975, United States versus Brignoni Ponce and United States versus Ortiz. These relate to uh, Brignoni Ponce relates to roving patrols of the Border Patrol. So basically, they would have these guys just patrolling the Mexican border on ATVs, cars, or whatever else. And if you kind of looked Mexican, that was enough for them to stop you. They would stop you and interrogate you about your citizenship and immigration status, even though they had no other basis to think that you were uh, involved in a crime or transporting illegal people or whatever else. Just you looked Mexican and that was good enough. Well, the Supreme Court said unanimously that that was not allowed. That violated the Fourth Amendment. And what they said was, quote, because of the important, let me pause. This is from the syllabus of the court decision because the opinion itself is long as fuck. So the syllabus is not law. It's basically a summary from the clerk of what the judges have said. So I'm going to give you a link to the full decision if you want to read through it. But the syllabus gives you kind of the gist of it. Uh, what it says is, quote, because of the important governmental interest in preventing the illegal entry of aliens at the border, the minimal intrusion of a brief stop and the absence of practical alternatives for policing the border, an officer whose observations lead him reasonably to suspect that a particular vehicle may contain aliens who are legally in the country may stop the car briefly, question the driver and passengers about their citizenship and immigration status, and ask them to explain suspicious circumstances. But any further detention or search must be based on consent or probable cause. So as, as that key sub-piece is you have to reasonably suspect the vehicle is carrying illegal aliens. They continue to allow roving patrols the broad and unlimited discretion urged by the government to stop all vehicles in the border area without any reason to suspect that they've violated any law would not be reasonable under the Fourth Amendment. And Part C, assuming that Congress has the power to admit aliens on condition that they submit to reasonable questioning about their right to be in the country, such power cannot diminish the Fourth Amendment rights of citizens who may be mistaken for aliens. 
The Fourth Amendment, therefore, forbids stopping persons for questioning about their citizenship on less than a reasonable suspicion that they may, in fact, be aliens. So, again, this case is not really talking about non-citizens. It's framed as this relates to American citizens who are here legally entitled to full Fourth Amendment protection. How do you apply that in the border region when you might look like someone who is, in fact, a Mexican immigrant? So United States versus Ortiz was decided the exact same day. So these two cases were heard together, relying on a factual record that came out of California, going into detail about how they do border patrol searches and seizures and everything else. So U.S. versus Ortiz was the exact same set of facts, except that related to searches in particular, as opposed to what we would call basically a Terry stop. So Terry v. Ohio, police can stop you and ask you limited questions. Uh, I think we covered that in a prior podcast. If I didn't, let me know. But essentially, Ortiz relates to searching of a vehicle. And what the Supreme Court held also unanimously was that a warrantless search was not permitted without consent or probable cause. And there was no distinction between the roving patrols, a checkpoint, or anything else because the actual invasion of a search doesn't really matter the method of the stop. So while a stop might matter, the search itself does not. They're treated the same whether you've got a patrol coming up on you or you're going through a border checkpoint or whatever else. So keep that as the background. Those cases were decided in 1975. The next year, in 1976, you have a case, United States versus Martinez Fuerte, where same basic facts, except you're dealing with a pre-established checkpoint roughly 66 miles from the border. And the Supreme Court, in a 7-2 decision, more or less backed away from the holding in Brignani-Ponce, where they wanted reasonable suspicion for a stop. What they've essentially said is that you don't need reasonable suspicion for a checkpoint if it's pre-established. So I'm going to read you some excerpts from the opinion. These are not from the syllabus. This is from the actual court holding itself. And the court says, quote, These cases involve criminal prosecutions for offenses relating to the transportation of illegal Mexican aliens. Each defendant was arrested at a permanent checkpoint operated by the Border Patrol away from the international border with Mexico. And each sought the exclusion of certain evidence on the ground that the operation of the checkpoint was incompatible with the Fourth Amendment. And one of the key points that they mention here uh, later on is that, quote, the government informs us that at this particular checkpoint, the average length of an investigation in the secondary inspection area is three to five minutes. So at the initial checkpoint, it's just a couple minutes at most to ask you if you're in fact a citizen. If they see something that prompts reasonable suspicion, they send you to the secondary area where you takes up to three to five minutes. That matters because one of the things the court looks at is the extent of the infringement on your rights. Uh, The court continues, quote, we are concerned here with permanent checkpoints, the locations of which are chosen on the basis of a number of factors. The Border Patrol believes that to assure effectiveness, a checkpoint must be distant enough from the border to avoid interference with traffic in populated areas near the border, close to the confluence of two or more significant roads leading away from the border, situated in terrain that restricts vehicle passage around the checkpoint, 
on a stretch of highway compatible with safe operation and beyond the 25-mile zone in which border passes are valid. Not sure what the border pass is. I probably should have looked that up before recording this. Um, The court continues, in delineating the constitutional safeguards applicable in particular contexts, the court has weighed the public interest against the Fourth Amendment interest of the individual, a process evident in our previous cases dealing with Border Patrol traffic checking operations. And here they cite Brignani Ponce, Ortiz, etc., etc. Our previous cases have recognized that maintenance of traffic checking programs in the interior is necessary because the flow of illegal aliens cannot be controlled effectively at the border. These checkpoints are located on important highways. In their absence, such highways would offer illegal aliens a quick and safe route into the interior of the country. Routine checkpoint inquiries apprehend many smugglers and illegal aliens who succumb to the lure of such highways. And the prospect of such inquiries forces others onto less efficient roads that are less heavily traveled, slowing their movement and making them more vulnerable to detection by roving patrols. Uh, The court goes later on, quote, a requirement that stops on major routes inland always be based on reasonable suspicion would be impractical because the flow of traffic tends to be too heavy to allow the particularized study of a given car that would enable it to be identified as a possible carrier of illegal aliens. In particular, such a requirement would largely eliminate any deterrent to the conduct of well-disguised smuggling operations, even though smugglers are known to use these highways regularly. The defendants note correctly that to accommodate public and private interests, some quantum of individualized suspicion is usually a prerequisite to a constitutional search or seizure, but the Fourth Amendment imposes no irreducible requirement of such suspicion. So the gist of the ruling is that if you are have a, a checkpoint that is permanent, it's set up, it's always there, it provides a uh, an aura, if you will, to the people that it's a legitimate operation. There is no requirement for reasonable suspicion. Everyone can go through it. They can be asked about their immigration status. And if for some reason you erase that suspicion, they can send you to a secondary inspection area where they can ask more invasive questions and potentially search if they have probable cause. So in the immigration context, this has basically been broken down into three separate genres of questioning by the police. You have the one or two question, are you an American citizen, that they can do without reasonable suspicion at all just because they can. You have more detailed questioning that requires reasonable suspicion if you're a roving patrol but does not require it if it's a checkpoint. And then you can be searched based on probable cause regardless of what kind of thing it is. So going back to that Fort Lauderdale situation where Customs and Border Patrol gets on the Greyhound bus – Asking every single person, are you an American citizen? Can you show me some proof? That's going to be treated as fine because you're still within that 100-mile border zone uh, anywhere in the state of Florida. And anything beyond that requires reasonable suspicion based on training experience, blah, 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 blah. And a search requires probable cause. But essentially, our courts have determined congressional authority is so absolute on issues relating to immigration that we've devolved to a point where we, we've got what we were fighting against. You have police who have the equivalent of a general warrant allowed to ask you at any time, are you a citizen? Give me your papers, please. The type of stuff you'd expect from the SS and Nazi Germany. Uh, and that's what it is. I mean, that's the law that Congress has enacted. The court has said that that is fine. 
and they've allowed this burden on citizens because as part of this balancing test they've articulated over the course of these handful of cases, they consider you being asked for your papers as such a minor interference that that's totally cool. Uh, I think it's ridiculous. Personally, I think it's bullshit. It's not what America is about. But the only way it's going to change is to have an executive that is more mindful of Americans and their rights, which you're not going to get in this lifetime because Trump is terrible. But guess what? Obama deported a fuckload of people, too. Dude was deporter in chief and it went below the radar. Uh, And the only if you're not going to get a better executive, your only other hope is to get better Congress critters and hope that they modify the INA and ARERA uh, to make it a little bit more rational and sensical. I don't think you're going to get that in my lifetime either, to be honest with you. So even though I'm a conservative, I'm not a progressive at all. I am a firm believer that you should run for something. You should run for office. And that particular pack run for something, even though they support progressive values, I love the idea that they're trying to get normal, everyday Americans to run for office because we need more people like you to step up and point out this type of stuff is bullshit. This is, this is not something that should be going on. You know, I, I went through this back in, was it 1999? So my freshman year at NC State, I didn't have a car. So I took a Greyhound bus from Raleigh to Virginia Beach. You know, I would walk from the campus to the bus station and then, you know, take the bus from there. And we got stopped, and I think it was a Hosky one time. Uh, And folks came in and and asked if uh, we were American citizens. And I thought it was weird because immigration, to me, I was not aware that immigration was as big a deal in 99 as it is now. Like everyone talks about immigration now. Uh, But apparently it was a big deal back then too because Arira passed in 96. But I thought it was freaky, you know. I, I was more trusting of police then than I am now. And even then, I thought it was freaky as hell. You know, the government should not be up in my business wanting to know whether or not I'm an American citizen. Because I am. Now, I've got the advantage that I'm white. So there's a presumption that they're going to assume I'm an American citizen and they're not going to give me a hard time like they would if my skin was slightly darker. But it's bullshit regardless. So I apologize for the mini rant. That is the end of this particular Law 140. I know there's a lot more stuff in the immigration context that y'all probably want to know about. I'm just not qualified to to give you much more on it. Uh, If you like what you've heard, please give me your feedback on Twitter at Fiscamall. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Send me any stories that I missed this week. And on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, who hopefully is not still in the studio, but he was earlier, um, thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you next Monday.